pandemic actually accelerated many of the trends that you know we had anticipated would unfold over the decade, like the technological disruption, deglobalization, and greater environmental action. This month on Ebb and Flow, we continue our year-ahead discussion, expanding from the topic of equities in our last episode to the outlook on the broader investment landscape. For this, we turn to UBS Chief Investment Officer in the Americas, Salida Marcelli. Salida leads the Chief Investment Office team here in the United States, and in that capacity works to bring together market and investment insights for the benefit of UBS clients around the world. She also sits on the UBS Global Investment Committee, which is responsible for formulating the UBS House. View. In our conversation, I asked Salida about the key drivers she anticipates for 2022, a year that her team has described as playing out in two halves. I also asked Salida to take us further into the future with a look at some key opportunities and risks in the decade ahead. Not an easy question to answer, but that's why we're talking to one of Wall Street's top investment experts. On behalf of UBS Long River Wealth Management, welcome to this month's second edition of Ebb and Flow. Salita Marcelli, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today. It's great to be here. Looking forward to our discussion. <laughs> okay, great. So, Salita, your team published your year-ahead outlook a few weeks ago now, but since then we've had some, I guess you could call it tremendous volatility in the market with news of the Omicron variant and then Fed Chair Powell also signaling a shift in his tone. Have the recent events changed your outlook as published a few weeks ago? So, Paul, you know, the short answer is no. We have certainly been through a roller coaster in the markets in the recent weeks. For the greater portion of this year, as you know, the markets have been focused on the growth and inflation outlook as the economy normalizes and also what that would mean for Fed policy. Mm. And we were at this point where the inflation data was clearly worsening and the market increasingly began to price in rate hikes in 2022. Right. And then, you know, almost overnight for Thanksgiving present, we got this use of a new variant that could affect not just the growth outlook, but also inflation. And of course, this raised questions around whether we could potentially be dealing with a severe variant that could prompt fresh lockdowns and derail the economy, or maybe at least temporary restrictions you know, that compound the problems we are seeing on the supply chain and labor market front. But, you know, it has also always remained possible that we could be dealing with just a mild variant after all. Right. And as the market was grappling with you know, what all these different scenarios could mean for Fed policy, then of course outcome Powell sounding a lot more hawkish, saying that it was time to retire the term transitory mm -hmm. and you know consider accelerating the taper of bond purchases. So well clearly a lot going on here for the markets to digest. And it is really hard to view any one issue, be it the Fed response or Omicron variant in isolation. I think a lot depends on how severe Omicron actually is. Right. And we still don't have reliable information on its um, severity. You know, we have, however, you know, had some positive news with Pfizer saying that the first two shots, while less effective against the Omicron variant, could still provide protection against severe disease, and that the booster effectively neutralizes the variant. Right. So I think it's still early days, and information is still trickling in. We're yet to hear from other vaccine players, and we need to keep a close eye on 
hospitalization to monitor the severity of this variant. But you know, the data so far supports our base case, and that's why we haven't changed our view, which is that the economic impact of Omicron will be similar to that of the Delta variant. Mm. If the symptoms of the Omicron prove no worse than the Delta, and the vaccines are shown to provide protection against severe disease, as has been the case with the Delta variant, you know, we might see some partial restrictions, but governments will stop short of a full lockdown. So, you know, if this mild variant scenario unfolds, well, we expect market attention to shift back to growth and inflation, and it already started happening, right? Of course, we have also, you know, mapped different risk scenarios. Mm-hmm. We believe in being prepared for all of those. That's why we have a wealth waste strategy and a well-diversified portfolio including exposure to defenses like healthcare and exposures to alternatives like hedge funds. And that is important because these benefit in risk of markets. Sure. And for our listeners, Salida just mentioned Wealthway, which for our clients, you know, we, we often talk about the three buckets, if you will, of assets of the, the three L's of liquidity, longevity and legacy, which is obviously critical, particularly in times of volatility. But Salida, I know you said just now that it's difficult to examine any of these issues in isolation because I know they all interrelate. But I do want to talk a little bit more about the, the Fed reaction function and the so-called Powell pivot that you, you've just referenced, you know, of him be- suddenly becoming more hawkish in that testimony to Congress. What do you think that means for Fed policy over the next year? You know, Paul's recent testament definitely represented a change in tone. I think the Fed acknowledges that inflationary pressures are broadening mm. and have lasted longer than expected. We've again seen with the CPI numbers from this week for the last month as an evidence of that. Right. And the willingness to consider an accelerated taper is in response to those persisting pressures, right? The Fed's view is still that inflation should fall as pandemic-related problems subside, but it is sort of unclear when those issues will exactly resolve. Now, given this uncertainty, the Fed is considering accelerating its taper to give it the option to hike rates as early as March, should there be a need for it. We expect the Fed will go ahead and announce an accelerated taper of about $30 billion a month at its December 15 meeting, which will allow it to wrap up quantitative easing by mid-March. But, you know, we don't view the faster taper as a fast track to rate hikes. The market is pricing in up to three rate hikes in 2022, which may be a bit too aggressive in our opinion. No, we believe the Fed will be patient with rate hikes, given that payrolls are still 4 million people short of pre-pandemic levels. And the economic outlook is, you know, somewhat still uncertain with this latest variant. So we don't think that FOMC members, you know, we think FOMC members are starting to converge around the idea of rate hikes starting in 2022. And we expect a liftoff, maybe the first hike coming in September, by which time sufficient progress is likely to have been made on the labor market front in order to satisfy the Fed's dual mandate. And then after that, our view is that, you know, there's going to be a gradual rate hike cycle in keeping with our view that inflation and growth are likely to slow in the second half of the year. So faster taper likely coming. I don't think they're going to rush for the hikes. 
potentially a September start, and then gradual hiking, taking into consideration falling growth and inflation rates in the second half of the year. Now, the other thing to remember, I think, is that rate hikes aren't the only tightening tool, right? Mm -hmm. Though it is, of, of course, the Fed's primary one. Even with the accelerated taper, the Fed's balance sheet which was below a trillion dollars back in 2008 before the global financial crisis, will approach about nine trillion by March of next year. Wow. So in, in the last cycle, the Fed waited a long time before starting to reduce their balance sheet. But you know, this time they may want to at least let some bonds roll off their balance sheet at an earlier stage. So basically as they're tightening the monetary policy, hikes faster taper, hikes flex to come, but there's also potential that they might start reducing the size of the balance sheet maybe earlier. What we have seen recently is that every time the market prices in more rate hikes, the yield curve flattens mm -hmm. because the market fears that rate hikes will bring in about a recession. So the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is very low currently, you know, given both the Fed's economic forecast mm -hmm. and also the current levels of inflation. I mean, who would have thought we would have 6.8% inflation and a 10-year Treasury yield of 1.5%. Right. right. So we think this flattening in the yield curve is overdone. And the Fed would like to see a steeper curve. So reducing the balance sheet could encourage that curve to steepen mm. and push up mortgage rates, helping to reduce inflation by taking some of the heat out of the housing market. Hmm. So to sum up, we think the market is aggressive in pricing three rate hikes next year. And we do expect a more patient and gradual approach uh, to rate hikes. Okay, good. That makes sense. Some interesting points there. And, and I thank you, Celita, for addressing those two, you know, more recent headlines of Omicron and, and the Powell pivot. But now let's turn to the year ahead report that, as I mentioned, your team put out a few weeks ago. And I'd like to dive into some of the key themes of that year ahead report. And specifically, your team talks about 2022 being a year of two halves. What does this mean and how does it impact where the best opportunities will be in 2022? So our base case, assuming that Omicron falls into the Delta wave, right. is that 2022 will be a year of two halves, like you said. So in the first half, global growth will likely be well above trend, driven by continued reopening dynamics. But the second half will see some normalization as you know, reopening is complete, excess savings are mostly spent, and emergency stimulus measures are withdrawn. So you know, inflation remains obviously a key risk heading into the new year, mm -hmm. but we believe it will subside as the year progresses. So in our view, the supply chain pressures and the related price increases are the result of an exceptional surge in demand for goods during the pandemic. I think we all experienced that, right. uh, which has overwhelmed our infrastructure and logistics. So as the economy normalizes and the pandemic threat recedes, we expect demand to shift back to services, easing supply chain pressures and also the price spikes. So also we think energy prices will stabilize as new production comes in. And when it comes to labor supply, you know, we think it should also improve as long as the Omicron situation remains manageable. So we expect inflation to ultimately fall below 2% in 
by the end of 2022. So we, of course, expect price spikes to persist into the first quarter. I mean, you know, what we're seeing now is it's probably continuing to the first few months of next year, mm-hmm. but then we have better comparisons. Right now, our comparisons to last year, last year, this time, the inflation numbers were so low. Right. But I think those comparisons are going to fall off as the year progresses next year. I don't think we're going to be seeing 6.8 type of inflation right. numbers at that point. And it's also, of course, you ask in terms of like the, where is the best opportunity. So from a positioning perspective, Paul, you know, we like Eurozone for its cyclical bias. Also, you know, Japan is another market, with cyclical market. It's supposed to see, I think, stronger domestic growth from relaxation of COVID restrictions. Both have accommodative monetary policy outlooks and have attractive valuations. So that's sort of what, how we're making our tactical sort of moves in terms of focusing on regions where there's a higher typical bias. Now, in the United States, we like mid-cap companies and also cyclical factors like energy and financials heading into the year. Mm-hmm. Effectively, we continue to prefer value stocks over growth. Now, given that, you know, I've talked about, you know, the two halves, the first half above trend growth, second half slowing growth. So given that we expect some moderation in growth in the latter half of the year, you know, we believe investors can balance out that cyclical exposure that I talked about a second ago by adding some healthcare to the portfolios, which happens to be relatively more defensive. And in addition to being attractively valued, you know, healthcare sector also offers structural growth opportunities, especially around health tech. Right. So those are sort of where we we're positioning right now. Okay, good. Well, th- thank you, and it does align with with a lot of the thinking with, within our team too. Which, so we appreciate that. So, by the way, Salita, in that last question, you, you met our dog Rosie, who was barking in the background. So I um, just wanted to make that introduction for you. So, you know, I was thinking about well, my dog, a golden retriever puppy, Moose, really wanted to stay with me during our podcast. <laughs> I try to get away a little bit, but I'm any moment he might walk in so they could meet along. All right, good. Well, I, you, <laughs> your dog is very welcome. So there you go. Uh, so, Salita, one thing I love about the Year Ahead report is that it also looks at opportunities throughout the next decade as well. So what are some of the best opportunities CIO is seeing to drive long-term outperformance? The pandemic actually accelerated many of the trends that you know we had anticipated would unfold over the decade, like the technological disruption, deglobalization, and greater environmental action. You know, when it comes to the you know trend of technological disruption, we focus on three major technologies enabling it, which we call the ABC technologies, if you will. You know, these are artificial intelligence big data, and cybersecurity. So we expect these ABC technologies, along with 5G, to grow faster than the tech sector as a whole. Importantly, I would say investors who wish to capitalize on these opportunities certainly need to look beyond the mega-cap tech companies and really focus on more mid-cap names. And also, you know, the private equity is one area to be able to get sort of better exposure to these areas as well. Mm You know, the other really consequential investment trend of this decade at this point will be transitioning to net zero carbon, right? right? When we, you know, 
look at around the world, almost 60, I'd say 59 countries responsible for 55% of global emissions have pledged to reach net zero carbon by 2050. At the same time, though, the world energy consumption is projected to increase by nearly 50% by 2050. So we are trying to, you know, get to net zero carbon, but the demand for consumption, energy consumption is increasing as fast. So the recent rise that we have seen over the last year in the prices of crude oil, natural gas, and of course coal to multi-year highs certainly highlights the need for substantially higher investment in green technologies to successfully achieve an zero carbon transition, but while minimizing economic disruption. I mean, I think this transition is obviously not going to happen overnight, and there's some volatility it's going to bring to the market. And, you know, that's why when we think about how to invest around it, we recommend opportunities in green tech world along with investing in some traditional commodities. But coming back to sort of the net zero carbon part of it, you know, we see opportunities across green tech. We also see opportunities, you know, in clean air and carbon reduction solutions, as well as carbon trading strategies. Yeah. And all those ideas are so interesting. You know, net zero carbon, obviously, and then the ABCs, artificial intelligence, big data, cybersecurity. I would just say to our listeners that Salita's team has done some great work here, the thematic team in particular, looking into these long term issues. And you can read all about them in the year ahead, but also in the thematic research that comes out of the chief investment office. So Salita, last question for you here. We've discussed your outlook on the year ahead and your thoughts on Omicron and the Fed, which have all been very fascinating. But we know that a backdrop of higher volatility and stocks near all-time highs can be an uneasy setting for investors or Mm -hmm. atmosphere for investors. And it often brings questions around whether staying invested or putting new money to work makes sense. What's your advice here? What would you say to people who are have trepidation about getting into markets at these points? Yeah, so there's always, I think, something investors can point to as a reason to get out of the market. We don't have the crystal ball and exactly how everything is going to unfold. And I think right now, there is certainly no shortage of these today. But, you know, we had this volatility spike after Thanksgiving, which, you know, created some uneasiness, as you mentioned. And the markets have remained choppy since then. But volatility alone is really not a good reason just to sell stocks, I think, or get rid of all your positions. I think it's always made good to put volatility in perspective, right? If we go back to that sell-off, you know, the VIX index, which measures implied volatility, mm-hmm. is about 29, right? And investors, I think, might be surprised that historically, a reading of 29 or above has been followed by strong returns from the S&P 500 over a three or a six or 12 month period. In all these periods, it has actually been quite positive. You know, but even when volatility decreases, we still come on here concerns about investing with stocks around all time highs as well. Right. You know, on this point, our analysis shows that since the 1960s, the S&P 500 rose an average of about 12% in the following 12 months Hmm. after reaching a fresh high. So, you know, our advice is maybe to try avoid trying to time the market exactly and to stay invested if you believe that, you know, we're in a world where the economy is growing, which is our expectation, and we can sort of identify pockets of growth. 
Now, if you have a well-diversified portfolio that aligns with your goals and also your needs, then you should be much better placed to look through the volatility and some of the risks that resurface. And if you're looking to protect against downsides, you know, maybe there are better ways to do so without selling out of the market completely, like investing in alternatives, hedge funds that can increase portfolio diversification, and sometimes even outperform in falling markets. Right. So I think staying invested, being you know careful and smart about you know hedging opportunities, I think is very important. But I would say there's probably no better protection than to have a radical diversification in your portfolio. Now, I know you did not speak to our founding partner, Tom Lips, before this call, but you would think you had because one of the one of the pieces of advice that he often quotes and that we quote regularly to clients is to get invested and stay invested and get diversified and stay diversified, which seems very much in line with what you were just describing. So thank you, Salida. We appreciate that advice. And we appreciate all the advice and uh, that you've given us on this call. I know you're very, very busy and, and we appreciate you taking the time with, with our friends and clients on this call. So on behalf of my partners, Tom Lips, Andrew Worthington, Ashley Martella, Paula Rose, and our entire team of 12 here at Long River Wealth Management, thank you so much and happy holidays to you, Salita. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Happy holidays to you all. 